Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Landis Wade. He is a recovering trial lawyer and the host of the Charlotte Readers podcast. His new book is Deadly Declarations, which is published by our friends at Leicester Books and Literary Services. Landis, welcome to the program. Thanks, uh, Jason. I really appreciate you having me. I love your show. Thank you so much. I love yours as well. And it is an (laughs) honor to have you here. Speaking of your show, Landis, before we uh, get into your book, can you please tell us about the Charlotte Readers podcast and what our listeners can expect to find when they look your podcast up? Yeah, Charlotte Risk Podcast has been around for about three and a half years. It's uh, it's what I did when I decided to uh, try to recover from the practice of law and uh, do something creative in my 60s. And so I did this thing I knew nothing about. I started a podcast and uh, started interviewing local authors and then kind of branched out from there, North Carolina. And now I've been uh, authors in 28 states and four countries uh, due to the beauty of uh, and magic of internet uh, podcasting. And so uh, listeners will get uh, a chance to hear authors talk about their books and actually read from their books. Uh, our tagline is uh, a shoulders podcast where authors give voice to the written words. And then I throw in a few writing life questions too, not unlike what you do uh, here with uh, your authors. Yeah. So if, um, if our listeners are to look you up and they see your catalog of episodes, um, what's one or two interviews that you recommend that they start with? So, uh, you know, my sort of centennial events I had in, on the 100th episode, I had uh, Craig Johnson, who's the author of the Longmire series, uh, uh, hails there from the Wyoming and uh, the Netflix series on Longmire. It's fun to watch, too, if you hadn't heard that. He's, he's a fun one to listen to. He's a real talker, tells some fun stories. Uh, for my 200th episode, I had John Hart on, and uh, he was a lot of fun. And uh, there's been some... I had a, a fun time interviewing Lisa Jewell from the UK. She's one of the top uh, fiction uh, authors there. And uh, David Baldacci, yeah, the list goes on. It's fun. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, I know some folks are going to probably jump right over there and look forward to checking some things out after they listen to this one. Um, well, Landis, I grew up in and around Charlotte, uh, but I haven't lived there for many, many years. Um I still visit often, though, as most of my family is in and around Charlotte. For myself and our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about Charlotte's literary history and then let us know if there are any other novels set in Charlotte? Yeah, well, there's uh, sort of Carson McCullers is sort of famous for having written uh, one of her early uh, books here. And uh, mm-hmm. then before she went on to uh, New York, uh, I mentioned John Hart earlier. His latest book um, is actually set uh, in Charlotte, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, there have been, you know, a lot of genre writers uh, who set their books in Charlotte uh, at different times. But, um, you know, it's a lot of times, though, it's kind of like Charlotte's yeah, part of the scene, but it's not really a deep dive into the city. We don't have too many you know, those kind of books. And so I kind of wanted to change that a little bit uh, with mine and, and uh, have people recognize some scenery when they, when they read the book. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Landis. So as I mentioned, um, 
I grew up in and around Charlotte, but I had never heard <laughs> of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence before I read your book. This may be a gap in my knowledge, or maybe the schools I attended weren't very good. Uh, but either way, um, this new information to me uh, was very interesting, and I assume it may be new information for our listeners as well. Can you tell us about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence? Yeah, thank you for that. That's probably part of the conspiracy they're keeping it from you, Jason. Uh, mm -hmm, right. They don't. They don't. They don't teach in the schools. But uh, if you ever look at the North Carolina state flag, you will find mm -hmm. a date on there at the top, May twentieth, seventeen seventy-five. Um, mm -hmm. That is the date that, uh, as the story goes, uh, militia leaders and uh, prominent citizens in what was called Charlotte Town at the time, what George Washington called a trifling place, by the way, they got together mm -hmm. and they debated what had happened. Uh, on the green at Lexington and in Concord, uh, that day the shot was heard around the world, and they were incensed by it. And they and they and they, you know, we sort of a lot of Presbyterians invested in this area, Scots Irish, you know, they they didn't much care for the crown to begin with, and so they voted, as the story goes, to declare independence from the greatest nation in the world. And uh, they sent a rider named Captain Jack 500 miles to Philadelphia to carry the news in his saddlebag. He was turned away. Uh, they they thanked him for the zeal of the citizens of Mecklenburg, but they said their actions were premature. Now, what mm -hmm. happened is if you fast forward, uh, uh, the documents from that meeting burned in a fire, the, the secretary's um, home burned and, uh, you know, they went up in smoke. And uh, it wasn't until like the early 1800s, 1817 or so, that a newspaper article showed up and John Adams saw it in a Massachusetts newspaper and had never heard of the Mech deck. And it started a letter writing campaign between he and Thomas Jefferson, who were bitter, you know, political rivals, but they actually communicated regularly by correspondence. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, John Adams called it uh, the, the, the greatest curiosity and deepest mystery that had ever occurred to him and, and Thomas Jefferson thinking he was being accused of plagiarism, which is part of the story too, uh, said, mm -hmm. no, it's spurious and an apocryphal gospel. And the problem is that, uh, at least from the historical standpoint, is that they did find a document called the Mecklenburg Resolves, and it was very treasonous in and of itself, but it didn't include the word independence. It had like 25 resolutions in it, uh, something like maybe a lawyer would write. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about it like a constitution and, a, and our own Declaration of Independence that came a year later, uh, two documents, one that's more lyrical uh, and speaks to freedom, the other one which speaks to sort of governance. Um, many believe, including the eyewitnesses who were there and saw the words read from the courthouse steps, that that's what we had. We had two documents, but one of them disappeared. But the historians say, well, really, they're mistaken. The only thing that really came out of that was the Mecklenburg Resolves. There was no Declaration of Independence. And the, and the great thing about this mystery is mm -hmm. neither side can prove the other side is wrong. Yeah, right. Thank you so much, Landis. And I'm going to ask you um, over the course of this interview here to expand upon several things you just spoke about. Um, but first, I'm hoping now that we have this information about the Mech Deck that you can set up your novel, Deadly Declarations for Us. It involves the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, obviously, but there is something else going on here with suppression of information. Set your novel up for us, please, Landis. Yeah, thank you, uh, Jason. Appreciate it. So the mystery begins in the modern day uh, in this New South City of Charlotte, North Carolina, where lots of people are coming from outside. 
where an unlikely trio of retirees uh, get together at uh, what's called the Independence Retirement Community. Uh, they affectionately refer to it as the Indy. They team up to solve two mysteries that are related to the death of a 96-year-old resident. Why was his manuscript on the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence missing when they found his body? And why did he leave his handwritten will uh, to the most despised resident at the Indy and cut his granddaughter out of the will, um, giving his $50 million fortune to this woman? And, and so mm. There's a lawyer who enters the scene. His name is Craig Travail. He's just been kicked out of his uh, large law firm at age 65. His wife has died. He ends up in this retirement community. He doesn't want to be there. He meets two other residents. One of them is Chuck Yeager Alexander. He's sort of an optimistic soul who loves historical conspiracies and actually shoots fish uh, in a pond with his with his rifle. And, and a former businesswoman named Harriet Keaton. And they encourage him to take a case to challenge the will uh, for the granddaughter, and they go to the Mecklenburg County Courthouse, and all these clues start to come out relating to the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. And before they know it, they think they are about to discover uh, the secrets that someone else is trying to keep about the Mech Deck. And they might solve a mystery that had not been solved in 250 years, that is, if they don't die trying. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much. And um, just to clarify, the uh, the granddaughter that was cut out of the will is the only surviving relative of the professor. Is that correct? That, that is correct. And so it's a real mystery to the friends of the granddaughter uh, who knew that mm -hmm. she was very close uh, to the deceased as to why he would do this, coupled with why his manuscript uh, was missing. And sort of another fact to throw in is that this professor uh, as they called him, uh, had written a best-selling book called An American Hoax, where he had debunked the Mech Deck uh, entirely. But before mm -hmm. he dies, about three months beforehand, he starts writing a book called An American Truth, but he's disrupted by uh, his death, <laughs> which is mysterious. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, the manuscript he's working on about this is also missing, leading them to wonder, well, did he discover something perhaps about the Mech Deck that uh, nobody before knew and if he did is that why he died right thank you so much landis um i told you that we were gonna uh expand upon some things that you mentioned in your previous answer um a bit of history in your book is in regards to george washington who as you mentioned called charlotte a trifling place uh did he really say this landis and is there a story behind this quote well, that's a good question. I mean, you, you can you can sometimes never really be sure mm -hmm. whether uh, what they said uh, happened. But George Washington came through Charlotte, I believe, um, toward the end of the war. Maybe maybe it was after the war was over, and he stayed, I think, in town, and he wasn't very impressed <laughs> with mm -hmm. with what he saw. And that's where the quote supposedly comes from. But uh, you know, Charlotte did play a big part in the in the revolution because the southern campaign mm. uh, actually turned the tide of the revolutionary war in favor of the colonists uh, uh if anyone's ever seen the patriot the movie <laughs> they get a mm -hmm. sense of you know what was going on at the time but, but the battle of king's mountain was a big turning mm -hmm. point just south of charlotte um charlotte is known as the hornet's nest because we put up a little bit of a fight when mm -hmm. uh cornwallis came through with uh, tartman and his cavalry and set up camp there but we, you know, we didn't have the numbers. We pretty much uh, stalled them for about 20 minutes. And, and as we said, stung them before uh, they, they took over the city. 
Yeah, and of course that is where the Charlotte Hornets NBA franchise got exactly. their nickname. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Landis. Listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Landis Wade. The Bookin' Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Landis Wade, author of Deadly Declarations, which is published by our friends at Leicester Books and Literary Services. So Landis, uh, the professor in your novel is found dead as he is working on this new book, um, which, as you mentioned, may refute the claims that the professor made in his old book, uh, which was that the mech deck was not real. Um, In the professor's apartment, they find a prescription bottle for the professor's insomnia medication. Landis, I want to ask you about insomnia. Um, Do you know people who suffer from it? And do you think there has been an upwards spike in insomnia and as a result, insomnia related medications uh, due to handheld smart devices like phones, tablets, et cetera, and websites that have a 24 hour a day, seven day a week refresh cycle. Well, that's a question I hadn't gotten yet in, <laughs> in this process. I, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I was trying to drop some uh, clues and hints there as to what may have happened. But, uh, mm. you know, uh, sleep uh, deprivation uh, is something uh, that some people suffer from. And, uh, you know, use. I suppose it's a, a better medication than drinking uh, too much. Mm. But, uh you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, you need your sleep. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. in this case, uh, I was thinking that, uh, he probably, um, was the kind of individual who had become obsessed with his, uh, topic. Uh, he was writing a lot. Uh, he needed that extra sleep. Uh, and I thought, uh, a bottle of insomnia pills that was spilled and turned on the side might lead some to believe that maybe he took too much. Yeah, thanks. And I, I did ask that question because we were in a shopping center here in North Hills in Raleigh, where we're right beside a Target and some other places. And when I have to walk over to, to Target to get some things, um, I'm seeing these huge sprawling displays of uh, insomnia, you know, like mm. melatonin gummies and things of that nature. And there just seems to have been <laughs> a spike uh, in that. Well, thank you, Landis. Um, the professor also has a sprawling book collection, books that take up every surface of his home. Many of our listeners, Landis, can probably identify with this. Um, the professor organized his books by topic. My question for you, Landis, is how do you organize your books? And what do you see are the pros and cons of organizing books by uh, alphabet, by subject, by color? or maybe even the no organization system? Well, I guess I'll have to uh, 
tie into the no organization system. You can see behind me, but my listeners can't. I've got books everywhere. Being a podcaster, I get several books sent mm -hmm. to me a week. So my system mm -hmm. is when I finish reading it and I finish doing the interview, I put them in a stack behind me or put them on the shelf and then go back mm -hmm. uh, later and, and think about organizing them or you know donating them to other people who can read them because my wife says I have too many books in the house. Uh, I, I, you know, I put books uh, on the shelf uh, that I like to hang on to and, and go back to and uh, I stack books in different places. Um, I do kind of organize them by some nonfiction. I might have some reference books. I know that I keep reference books on writing in a certain location. I keep uh, maybe some mysteries in a certain location, some thrillers. Um, and then once it stand out to me, uh, I'll, I'll I've even got some of those hanging shelves now, Jason. I'm, I'm kind of my what you know this this place that I, I call my study now, which is my office after I retire from the law firm and I'm recovering. Uh, mm -hmm. My wife doesn't even like to walk in here because there's just too many overflowing books. It kind I kind of had that vision about the professor's place with the books overflowing off the shelves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I have the opposite problem, Lynn. It's my wife. Um, all like I also have a degree. Um, we both have degrees in literature um, and her father was a literature professor, et cetera. So she's probably the only person I know personally that reads more than I do. Mm -hmm. um, so our house is a mess of bookshelves <laughs> and sprawling books and repurposing other surfaces to become bookshelves, et cetera. Um, well, Landis, my next question, suppose that you are a character in a novel. Someone you know dies, a friend, a relative, a coworker, an acquaintance, um, etc. A will is found that was updated the day before this person's death to exclude family and include someone surprising. Does this situation ever go right? In other words, is it ever not fishy? Well, the way you set it up, uh, I, I'm supposing the answer is no, no it's never not fishy. Um, it, it, you know, it's going to cause people to ask questions, right? And, you know, mm. when people age um, and they have caregivers that take care of them and mm. suddenly the will that's been in place for five to 10 years when they maybe were thinking a little more clearly than they are right close to their death uh, is changed and it's changed at the last minute. Yeah, mm. they're going to be questions by family members and relatives who are part of that will who may have been had it changed. But, you know, um, sometimes in those situations, there's an explanation that uh, the person who's actually doing most of the caregiving in the last four or five years is the one who becomes closest to mm -hmm. uh, the deceased. And they decide, well, you know, nobody else is showing up, so I'm going to change my will. And just because they do doesn't mean there's something uh, inappropriate about it. Uh, they have to, you know, we lawyers, we have these tests and this one would be kind of a totality of the circumstances test, which basically means it's kind of a fact question as to whether or not that person was uh, unduly influenced uh, in some way to make their will or change their will. But, you know, when it goes from a typewritten will that's you know, from a lawyer's office that was witnessed by people to a, a little handwritten will at the last minute, yeah, that's going to raise questions. It's good fodder for a novel. <laughs> Yeah, sure is. Thank you so much, Landis. Um, so speaking of your former life as a trial lawyer, uh, you shout John Grisham out in this novel. Um, John is probably one of the uh, most frequent guests on this podcast. I've spoken with him several times. I cannot help but notice that his personal uh, bio and yours parallel one another more than a little. Um, do you count John as an inspiration at all? I really do. And uh, I have listened to your, your interviews uh, of him. The one you did during the pandemic was a lot of fun. 
um, regarding uh, his basketball novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I, I mean, when I was a young lawyer, um, I read his books with a great deal of envy. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, he's found something that he really enjoys doing and he's good at it. And, uh, I, you know, I read a time to kill before time to kill was really popular. Um, mm. I've gone to see him, uh, when he came to Parker books and talked to him, I, I really think he's just done a great job. Um, and he's really lifted this genre of, uh, these legal thrillers and, uh, you know, to be, to, to have anyone say, you know, our, our resumes look a bit alike. Yeah. They look a little bit alike, except that he's got like 25 <laughs> New York times bestselling authors. I've got a couple of books, you know, but I got started mm-hmm. late. So maybe I'll catch up someday. Who knows? Yeah. You may get there. And his daughter lives in the same neighborhood as our bookstore here, which is why we see him uh, around from time to time. Most recently he was at the uh, Carolina hurricanes game that my son mm. and I attended a few days ago. Um, he's a really great guy. Um, earlier Landis, you said that Charlotte is a new South city, capital N capital S. What does that mean to be a new South city? So I think it means, you know, there, there are all these uh, stereotypes about the South that some people still have not gotten over, you know, that date back to, you know, antebellum days. And mm-hmm. so uh, Charlotte uh, really, it has been a progressive city um, and uh, in lots of ways over the years. And a lot of people coming to Charlotte from a lot of different places, changing, you know, the, the population and how people think. And, uh, you know, while there are still uh, remnants of, you know, sort of high society uh, in certain places, I, mm-hmm. I, I see it this sort of a melting pot from from all over the country now with with people coming to work here and so i consider that to be new in the sense that the south has is not what people may have thought about it at one time but it's more of a progressive uh, place to live yeah right and what would you consider an old south city mm. I guess if we go deeper into the South, I don't want to get in trouble anywhere, but, uh, you know, uh, we can probably talk about Arkansas and Alabama and any people that, uh, you know, in, in Georgia, anybody that might think the election was stolen, you know, that kind of thing, um, that, uh, you know, can't get over, um, that kind of political, yeah, of course we can't veer off there. We just go in in a lot of different directions, but yeah, Yeah. uh, old South, but there's some good things about the old South too. I mean, there's beauty, um, there's literature, there's uh, a lot of tradition. It's just that uh, a lot of the old South, unfortunately, um, it doesn't, is not uh, as inclusive as hopefully new South cities are, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we're not free of those old South towns here in North Carolina. Maybe right. our cities are, are, are all new South at this juncture. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Landis. Uh, finally, um, I'm going to ask you a writerly question um, and bring us back full circle to the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence and some things that you mentioned earlier. Uh, for our listeners who read your book and then want to learn more, can you let us know what sort of research you did on the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence and whether there are any other books or historical documents that consulted? For example, are the letters that you referenced that were written by Thomas Jefferson and John Adams uh, real? Yeah, the letters are real. Um, I, I thought I wanted to put that in the book to to, to bring some realism to the page so that uh, if, I mean, I'm like, 
I don't know about you, Jason, but I, when I finish reading a book that's uh, historical fiction, I often wonder well, what's fact and what's fiction and how far, mm-hmm. how far can you go? And I tried to put as much fact in this book as I could. I drew heavily uh, on a book that's written by Scott Seifert. He is a local uh, author, amateur historian in Charlotte. Uh, he's written a book about uh, the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. And uh, I talk about it in that, that in my afterward of the book. Um where he sort of covers the whole history, but does it in the sense of covering both sides of the story. He is a believer in the MacDeck, and yet he presents uh, both sides. And out of that, he's got a lot of citations, a lot of sources. And there's a, a website in Charlotte called the May 20th Society website. It's a site where uh, proponents of celebrating MacDeck Day, which is May 20th, uh, they've got a lot of information on there, uh, a lot of uh, frequently asked questions, uh, history, and how the MECDEC uh, is seen and viewed and what actually happened. And there are, yeah, I mean, there are some historical sources out there. Charles McMurray Library has them as well, uh, that has information about Captain Jack's ride, uh, what the Moravians, uh, a couple of Moravians uh, in uh, Winston-Salem at the time left behind in their diaries that confirmed that a man did come through there in May of 1775, carrying a document. And one of them, actually, a name, Tregat Baggy actually wrote in German that uh, something had happened in Mecklenburg and he used the words free, F-R-E-Y in German, uh, the independent. And somebody says, as Scott says in his book, why would he do that unless the document had something in it that said independence? So there are a lot of sources out there, a lot of good uh, information. Check out Scott's book. Check out the May 20th Society website. Uh, there's also the Charlotte uh, Liberty Walk, and uh, we have the Trail of History in Charlotte. If you're ever in Charlotte, walk the Trail of History down at the little uh, Sugar Creek uh, Greenway, which they've cleaned up, and you'll see a lot of prominent figures, including the Spirit of Mecklenburg, which is a big, huge bronze statue of Captain Jack on his horse. Mm-hmm. That's all fantastic information. Thank you so much, Landis, and thank you for writing this book. I learned a lot about a place where I have spent uh, much of my life. And I know our listeners will learn a lot too. This is going to be a fantastic book for fans of John Grisham, David Baldacci, John Hart, some of the folks that we mentioned. Um, We're going to sell a ton of copies here at Quail Ridge Books, signed copies as you will be here for an event. And we're going to get you to sign uh, a very, very large stack of this book. Uh, I can't wait for our listeners to read this novel. Um, Listeners, I've been speaking with Landis Wade, author of Deadly Declaration, which is published by our friends at Leicester Books and Literary Services. Landis, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and privilege. I look forward to our event on April 21st at Quail Ridge with Heather Bell Adams. Once again, I would like to thank Landis Wade for joining me. Signed copies of Deadly Declaration can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.